Think warm thoughts, guys, because today's installation of Doggy History takes you to icebound Nome, Alaska and the 1925 rescue of that city by some intrepid canines and their human companions. Hope you're all keeping warm out there because you're about to hear a tale of grit, determination, and some really gratuitously silly cold wintry weather. This week on Doggy History, we're going to talk about the daring serum race to Nome, which took place in the dead of winter 1925 when teams of dogs and mushers got an emergency delivery of diphtheria serum to that city and saved many lives. It's a great story on its own, but even more interesting to me as a doggy historian is what this story and the culture of dog sledding more generally says about that special relationship between humans and dogs. This is a prime example of the way the humans and their interventions in the canine species were paralleled by developments in technology, and the dogs, the technology, and the technique all came together to produce an extraordinarily effective result. Dog sledding, as we'll see, is a very old pursuit. Anyone who's taken a dog for a walk knows that dogs love to pull, and when they feel resistance, i.e. their valiant owner trying to get them to heal, they pull even harder. If you're thinking to yourself, what else would they do, try putting a cat on a leash. I have, and I don't recommend it. The instinct to pull, shared by all dogs, is the basic reason why dog sledding, or using dogs as pack animals, is at all effective. While dog sledding is kind of a curiosity these days, the traditions kept alive by recreational mushers, as well as high-profile races like the Iditarod, which we'll return to briefly at the end of this podcast. So to begin our story, here's a little fact that will make anybody who lives in the lower 48 feel better about the temperature outside today. The city of Nome experiences seven months of winter each year. Located on the Seward Peninsula in northwest Alaska, just below the Arctic Circle, the city gets frozen into the Bering Sea from November through June most years. In the years before reliable air travel, this meant that if anything needed to reach Nome during those months, it was down to dog sleds. Teams of up to 25 dogs and their musher pulling two big sleds full of U.S. mail, weighing almost 1,500 pounds. There were telephone and telegraph links by the early years of the 20th century, so Nome wasn't completely isolated from the world outside. But all the same, each year, before the last ship departed for points south, the city would take a number of precautions battening down buildings, much like you'd see in preparation for a hurricane, because they'd be dealing not just with snow, but also with high winds. They'd also bring in frozen food. Refrigeration was, you know, not a problem. And they'd also turn off the plumbing. Why build a city in such a silly spot, you ask? The answer is simple. Gold. You've heard of the gold rush in the Klondike and the Yukon, right? In 1898, gold was discovered in Nome by three immigrants from Scandinavia, known informally as the Lucky Swedes, even though one of them was actually Norwegian. This sparked a gold rush, similar to those seen in other Alaskan towns. The rush out to Nome was over fairly quickly, though. Perhaps due to the fact that, really, who wants to live somewhere where it's winter seven months a year and you can freeze or burn your lungs stepping outside for most of those months? Surprising, right? A number of people did stay, though. In 1924, when our story begins, the population of Nome was a respectable 3,500. By 1924, there hadn't been a diphtheria case in Nome for 20 years. The antitoxin for this disease, which is actually a serum from inoculated horses, had been developed in 1902, and global rates of diphtheria had plummeted accordingly in the following two decades. There were still outbreaks, but they were fewer and farther between, and the mortality rate had improved for even the seriously ill. It was such a low priority that actually in 1924, the serum that the doctors had up in Nome was expired. They'd requested more earlier that year, but the request went unfilled, which would have rather dire consequences. First, a word on diphtheria. Diphtheria is a nasty way to go. 
The most notable first symptom is a severe sore throat, so it's often initially misdiagnosed as tonsillitis. Now, before you go convincing yourself that you have it, the next stage of the disease involves ulcers that form in the back of your throat and eventually turn gray and crusty. These proceed down the patient's throat until he or she eventually asphyxiates, which is why the disease is sometimes also called the strangler. Saddest of all, this disease overwhelmingly strikes children between the ages of 1 and 10, and it's extremely contagious. Unchecked, it can wipe out an entire generation of children. Further, the still considerable uh, native population of Gnome was at the greatest risk because they had very little immunity to diseases like diphtheria that had been introduced by white settlers moving in. The first cases of the 1924 outbreak appeared in Nome just before Christmas and started to multiply through the new year, 1925. There were a series of desperate telegraphs to Washington for assistance, and the whole nation really got invested via newspaper coverage. The Public Health Service begged, borrowed, and stole 1.1 million units of serum from hospitals up and down the West Coast for transport to Nome, and Alaskan hospitals also started making arrangements to get the serum there, but the question was really how to do it. A lot of different solutions were considered, including an airplane drop, which very nearly did happen, but the weather ultimately made it impossible. By the end of January 1925, the decision was made to use the dogs, and preparations got underway. At the time, people made a lot of the fact that even in an age of rapidly advancing technology, ultimately what they came to rely on was a combination of a very old technology uh, and the animal first domesticated by humans, the dog. Dogs had been used as hunting companions and pack animals by the Alaskan natives for thousands of years, even before there were Alaskan natives. If you think back to my first podcast, the area we're talking about today, uh, Nome and the Seward Peninsula, which stretches out towards Russia, it was smack in the middle of the Beringian Land Bridge, where 20,000 years ago the first human inhabitants of the Americas may have crossed over with their dogs, firmly in tow, as helpers, companions, and the occasional portable food source. Sorry, pup. But humans are, of course, always trying to build a better mousetrap. Despite how patently obvious it was that dogs were the most reliable means of travel in Arctic conditions, basically until the introduction of the modern snowmobile in the 1950s, there were attempts to introduce other means of travel. Gay and Laney Salisbury, whose book about the serum race I highly recommend, suggests that this was often linked to a, a rather unfortunate resistance on the part of white settlers to adopt native ways of doing things perceived as inferior. This was certainly the case uh, for Sheldon Jackson, who was a missionary who attempted and nearly succeeded in introducing reindeer as an alternate means of transport for the mail during the 1890s. He made some you know, comparisons between dogs and natives that were, shall we say, not flattering. He suggested they were both lazy, quarrelsome, and difficult to handle. Clearly not a dog lover or terribly nice person. The reindeer scheme didn't work out, though, because quite contrary to your childhood images of Santa and Rudolph, reindeer, though domesticated, are not really about pulling things, or following orders, uh, and they have nowhere near the brains of a dog, so the program was scrapped pretty early on. So let's talk about these sled dogs for a second. Thanks to movies like Snow Dogs or Eight Below, which I can't watch without weeping. Actually, I don't want to talk about that. So thanks to movies like that, when we think of sled dogs, we think of Siberian Huskies or Malamutes. They're wolfish-looking, grayish, black and white dogs, often with striking blue eyes. In reality, however, this was not entirely the norm uh, in the early days of mushing, and in fact it's not even entirely the case today for working sled dogs. There were legends about wolf hybrids being pressed into service, but again, if you listen to my first podcast, you may guess that legends is all they are. Wolf hybrids are way too intractable for that, and they tend to be really hostile toward other dogs, which is unacceptable if you're working in a team. During the years of the gold rush through the early 20th century, there were more dogs than people in the Alaskan territories. Gangs of them actually roamed the streets while not employed, uh, prompting legislation that forced them to wear bells. 
The demand for dogs was so great that there was a sizable black market in the States for suitable sled dogs. This is the plot of Jack London's Call of the Wild, first published in 1903. Remember? The protagonist, the dog Buck, is a big strapping pooch living the life on a ranch in California who gets kidnapped and shipped north to be a sled dog. Cold-weather dogs like St. Bernard's, Bernese Mountain Dogs, Newfoundlands, and other big dogs who had been bred to pull things were the most popular candidates for this. These dogs would then be bred with the local working sled dogs who tended to be smaller and faster. The results of this mix could weigh up to 125 pounds and, working in teams of 10 to 13, haul three quarters of a ton in temperatures well below zero. The early 20th century saw one of the big revolutions in dog mushing, the introduction of the Siberian Husky. Now, we tend to use the Husky Malamute as, as more or less interchangeable, but actually there's a big difference. Siberian Huskies came originally, as their name suggests, from eastern Siberia. The native peoples there had been using them for centuries as hunting companions and sled dogs, and their selective breeding had produced a relatively small animal, about 50 pounds on average, who in a team could nevertheless travel at speeds of up to 9 miles an hour for 11 hours straight without getting tired. To give you some idea, the Alaskan Malamutes favored by the Alaskans, which were bigger, heavier dogs, maybe 70-odd pounds, could barely crack 5 miles an hour, and they tired much more easily. Both of these types of dog tended to possess a number of useful adaptations for surviving in cold weather. An extremely warm double coat, consisting of a coarse, insulating outer coat and a downy, warm inner coat that shed in summer, almond-shaped eyes that kept wind and snow from impeding vision, and tufted ears that, again, kept wind and snow out and kept them from freezing. These dogs could survive in temperatures up to 80 degrees below zero, though mushers warned they shouldn't be worked hard if the temperatures drop below minus 40 when they become prone to pulmonary hemorrhage from forcing the cold air through their lungs, or above 40 degrees Fahrenheit when they can overheat. These sled dogs, together with their musher, formed a well-oiled machine. With dogs of roughly the same size as the huskies tended to be, their gait was pretty uniform, and the sled could be pulled smoothly. The dogs get into step with one another, placing their back paw into the print made by their front paw with each stride. It's really amazing, efficient movement. Further, like all dogs, the sled dogs possess a sense of smell six to seven hundred times stronger than humans to help them follow the trails and sensitive paw pads, which it's thought could detect subtle changes in the temperature and consistency of the ice, helping them avoid disasters on the ice pack. Much as we've seen in my previous breed podcast, there was pretty quickly an effort to standardize and rationalize the breeding of these dogs in the Alaskan territories. A lot of this was due to a Scottish immigrant and famous musher by the name of Scotty Allen. Allen had a pretty interesting career. He and fellow enthusiast Esther Birdsell Darling actually trained teams of sled dogs for the eastern front of World War I in 1915 for the French army. In 1907, Allen and several others, including Albert Fink, the lawyer who would later go on to represent Al Capone, founded the Nome Kennel Club. Their aim was to breed and train superior working sled dogs, more or less without reference to looks and conformation. To inaugurate the Kennel Club, they put on a race in 1908, the All-Alaska Sweepstakes, with a $10,000 first prize. Now, Scotty Allen actually won most of these races the first few years. To return to those Siberian Huskies, in 1910, an all-Siberian team won the sweepstakes, and their record remained unbroken until actually 2008. They ran the 408-mile race in 74 hours, 14 minutes, and 37 seconds. And it was rendered all the more impressive because the winning driver, the famed musher John Ironman Johnson, was actually snowblind for the last 100 miles of the trip. This is a common condition for mushers where you basically uh, sunburn your cornea from the reflection of sunlight on snow. You usually don't notice it till a couple of hours later, by which time it's too late and you're blind until it heals. This means Johnson's lead dog actually piloted them back for the last leg of the trip. 
So the dogs are really important, but so is the equipment, the technology that humans develop to fit with these dogs. Again, Scotty Allen was something of a pioneer in this regard. He designed lighter harnesses and sleds for the dogs, and his designs with modifications are actually still in use. He also was one of the first to design dog booties, because if the musher is dead without the dogs, the dogs are dead without their feet. And it's easy for dog-sensitive foot pads to get frozen or cut up on the ice and snow. As far as the sledge went, drivers would be either perched on or running alongside a 9-14 to foot sledge made of hickory or birchwood, nice light woods, and lashed with rawhide. Early native designs for dog sleds involved a different configuration than the one we're used to seeing. Each dog would actually be attached by a lead directly to the sled. This is called a fan hitch because the dogs fan out to pull the sled. This configuration is useful if you're hunting seal on an ice pack, proceeding cautiously and distributing weight more evenly, but it wasn't the most efficient way of deploying horsepower, or dog power, if you wanted speed. For this, French-Canadian trappers introduced the tandem trapline hitch during the 19th century, with dogs running in a straight line in pairs. This way, all the power is concentrated on the front of the sled. The French connection, incidentally, may be why mush is the term used by drivers when they want their teams to go. It's a corruption of the French word marche, or marchand, meaning walk. Gay and Laney Salisbury again make a really interesting point about the chronology of these changes in sledding technology. They suggest that the evolution of the dog sled kept pace with the evolution of the indigenous cultures that lived in Alaska. White settlers brought guns, guns meant more efficient hunting, and more efficient hunting meant more pelts to transport, which in turn necessitated more efficient means of transport, hence the dog sled. Again, it's a neat example of technology and evolution working together, because remember, the type of dog used and the type of dog breeders favored was changing at the same time the sleds were changing. So, okay, we've talked about the dogs and about the equipment. What about technique? These dogs live to pull things. While this is what makes dog sledding possible, it can also make the driver's life more difficult. So if you've ever been to an animal shelter or a kennel, you know that the one thing that can drive a caged dog absolutely crazier than anything else is seeing another dog taken out of the kennel. Now, imagine having to hook 13 dogs into tandem harness without them running away, playing, biting each other, or biting you. This was really down to the skill and finesse of the driver, who would have to straddle the dogs and hook them in as quickly as he could. From there on, drivers could expect their team to keep going for 10-hour days with breaks. Drivers live and die by their team, so taking care of them is their first priority. The dog's diet consisted mainly of dried salmon, sometimes mixed up with hot water and oatmeal to make a kind of sloppy stew. Dogs also required a gallon of water each a day, which had to be hauled up through the ice or laboriously melted from snow. They had to be rubbed down at the end of the day like horses so their muscles wouldn't cramp, and they had to be bedded down on insulating and comfy spruce boughs. Then the driver could take care of himself. If the trip was hard on the dogs, it was also brutal on the drivers. To make the sled lighter, the musher would often have to run alongside the dogs or push or pedal from behind. Sometimes they didn't have time to eat. They could suffer from snow blindness, frostbite, hallucinations. It wasn't uncommon for mushers to finish races lashed to the sled to keep them from falling off. But okay, once you have the dogs, the equipment, and the basic technique, how do you go about deploying it? You can't just hook any old dog in any old place. The art of mushing is all about choosing and deploying your team. At the front of the team, there are one or two lead dogs who we'll talk about in a second. They make the decisions and they work closely with the driver, with whom they usually have a strong bond. Directly behind them are the swing or point dogs, who help turn the sled. And then come the team and wheel dogs, the most powerful dogs in the team, closest to the sled. They provide the majority of the power, while the leader and the point dogs provide the brains and the maneuverability, respectively. As you might guess, the most important of that team is in fact the leader or leaders. The lead dog is not necessarily the strongest or the fastest, but he or she must be the smartest. 
More than that, great lead dogs, like the ones we'll hear about, possess what their drivers refer to as a sixth sense. Leonard Sapala, one of the all-time great dog drivers who we'll hear a lot more about, told amazing stories about his lead dog, Togo, who rescued him from countless tight spots out on the ice, apparently by canine intuition. Another great musher, Olaf Svensson, said that buying one is almost like buying a human being who's about to undertake a joint venture with you. A good lead dog was almost, if not literally, priceless to his driver. All the sled technology and technique in the world couldn't make up for the lack of a good leader and the relationship between the driver and his dog. This is the reason why, actually, in, in results for races like the Iditarod, um, you'll see included both the name of the driver and also his or her lead dog. So, let's return to Gnome now and see how this animal-technological combination helped save the day. Normally during the winter, if anything had to reach Gnome, it had to take a rather tortuous route. First, supplies would be shipped from the lower 48 to the port of Seward in southeast Alaska, which was not icebound. Then it would be taken 420 miles to the city of Nenana by train, where the train line met the mail route to Nome. From there, it would go 674 miles by dog sled, which normally took 25 days. This 25 days factors in relays with fresh drivers and also overnight breaks. 25 days, however, was not going to cut it in the situation that Nome was facing, with people dying every day from diphtheria. So a plan was devised to have two routes, one coming west from Nanana and the other coming east from Nome, that would meet in the middle to get the serum and bring it back. Each leg, western and eastern, would have an increased number of handoffs, so that the drivers and their dogs could be expected to be reasonably fresh. No one driver and team would be running more than 100 miles. Even so, it would be a continuous relay, no stopping overnight, meaning some of the drivers would have to mush in pitch blackness. The rescue of Nome would depend on this daring system of relays, for which there was very little margin of error. Remember, the drivers had no way of communicating with each other or even knowing their own exact location. Further, for good measure, the temperatures during the winter of 1924-5 were unseasonably cold even by Alaskan standards, which is truly saying something. The overnight legs saw temperatures of 50 below or even 60 below, which is, of course, well below the minus 40 that's considered safe to mush the dogs. All told, about 20 men and 150 dogs were involved in this risky enterprise. Now, the diciest part of the whole dicey affair was going to be the portion of the western run that passed over Norton Sound, a shortcut that would save a considerable amount of time as opposed to hugging the coastline. Norton Sound is, as its name suggests, a body of water, but during midwinter, it was frozen over. This, of course, does not always mean that it was frozen solid, and it certainly didn't mean that it was frozen evenly. When salt water freezes, it doesn't freeze in a nice, smooth sheet that you can skate on. Instead, there are ridges and dents and all kinds of things that could break a runner or injure a dog or his driver. Further, there were frequently something called ice shoves, which the Inuit people call ivu, the ice that jumps. This is basically where a surge of water current suddenly thrusts up a wall of ice. It sounds like thunder or a car crash, and it can be just as destructive. For this most dangerous part of the run, there was only one driver deemed capable, Leonard Sapala. Leonard Sapala was a Norwegian immigrant who became synonymous with dog driving over the course of his long career. He actually worked for the gold company in Nome, supervising the transfer of supplies and the gold that was shipped out of Nome. As such, he knew all the trails like the back of his hand. He was also very well versed in the art and science of dog breeding and sledding. He and his lead dog Togo had, by 1924, been mushing together for seven years and had won a lot of races. They'd actually done the western run of the trip together in four days, averaging an incredible 81 miles a day. Sapala was small. He was only about 5 foot 4 and 145 pounds, which is an advantage if you're being pulled by dogs. He got his start with his own team by a kind of fortuitous series of events. Roald Amundsen, the explorer who would be the first to reach the South Pole, was in 1913 planning an expedition to the North Pole. 
Zapala's boss, Jafet Lindeberg, he was actually the uh, Norwegian out of the three lucky Swedes who found the gold in, in 1898, presented his fellow Norwegian Amundsen with a team. Amundsen wound up canceling the trip, and Zapala got to keep that team and train them. His original leader, Sugin, would become the father of his more famously dog, Togo. At the time of the serum run, though, Togo was getting on. He was 12 years old. He was small and scrappy, too, like Sapala, only 48 pounds, with a muddy-looking black and brown coat. Still, Sapala in his biography tells amazing stories about Togo's intelligence and personality. Togo had kind of a rocky start in life. He was sickly and stubborn in puppyhood, and Sapala sent him out actually to live as a house pet, thinking that he was unsuitable for mushing. But Togo actually ran away and rejoined his pack. At eight months old, Togo, whom Sapala describes as an infant prodigy, led his first sled drive, and from then on, he and Sapala were a team. Great story, right? But you've probably never heard it before. That's because if you'd ever heard of the rescue of Nome before this podcast, odds are you'd heard of it because of Balto, the lead dog who ran the final leg into Nome. There have been a ton of children's books, and uh, even a Steven Spielberg animated film, too. This is kind of a classic case of someone's thunder being stolen, though, because Balto was, first of all, actually one of Sapala's dogs, and he shouldn't even have run that leg of the relay. So the reason for Balto's fame is this. Balto happened to be a lead dog running under Gunnar Kassen, a fellow Norwegian and a colleague of Sapala's, for the second-to-last leg of the Western Run, so one run before the, the one that enters the city of Nome. Kassen was supposed to stop at Port Safety and hand off the serum to another musher. Kassen had made the decision to battle on in the face of the blizzard, and because the other mushers had no way of communicating with each other, they assumed he was going to wait it out. He arrived late at 3 a.m. and found Ed Rohn, the driver he was supposed to hand off to, asleep. Rather than wake the guy up, and that poor guy must have felt like such a jerk the next day, <laughs> Kassen went on, despite the fact that he and his dogs had been going since 10 p.m. the night before, in whiteout conditions and temperatures of 70 below. They finally arrived in Nome at 5.30 a.m. on February 2nd. All told, they carried with them 300,000 units of serum. The total run of 674 miles had taken five and a half days. Zipala never really forgave Kassen, not so much for the feat itself, but for the fact that Kassen got a lot of publicity, and in Zipala's view, he and Togo did not get their due. Kassen signed a movie deal with Saul Lesser, actually, as a producer who would later work on the Rintin Tin movies. Balto and Kassen also uh, actually starred as themselves in a 30-minute-long 1925 film, Balto's Race to Nome. Kassen started doing publicity tours immediately following the rescue of Nome with Balto and his team, which is incidentally why there's a statue of Balto in Central Park of all places. They actually mushed through Central Park. Kids in particular have always been enthralled by Balto. If you look closely at the statue uh, in Central Park, you can see it's worn thin in places where generations of kids have been petting him and riding on his back. It wasn't all a bed of roses, though. After the public inevitably lost interest, the sled dogs found themselves sold to a sideshow in Los Angeles. They were eventually rescued by a businessman from Cleveland who organized a drive to raise $2,000 to buy them from the sideshow, and eventually Balto and six of his teammates got to live out their days at the Cleveland Zoo. I guess that's a happy ending? I don't know. As I mentioned earlier, the era of the dog sled really wasn't over till the 1950s, when the first modern snowmobiles came into common usage. With the snowmobiles came the decline of the old sled trails. They were too dangerous for snowmobiles, which could easily get stranded. It's kind of bittersweet. I mean, technology evolved, and that particular relationship between dogs and humans became less necessary. Dog sledding declined because it was no longer necessary. In the 1970s, Dorothy Page and Joel Reddington, who were sled dog enthusiasts, started kicking around ideas to help preserve the heritage of the sport and wound up organizing what would become a major cultural and economic boost for the region, the Iditarod Race. Iditarod is actually a river which gives its name to a sled trail between Anchorage and Nome. 
This trail is around 1,100 miles long, and the race usually takes a driver with a team of 16 dogs anywhere from 9 to 15 days. The first race, run in 1973, actually featured a number of the sons of the original relay drivers. So, And if you're struggling with the math, those original relay drivers were only in their late teens or early 20s during the historic 1925 serum run. And as a testament to the degree to which those original mushers were truly hauling ass, the 1973 race took a full six days longer, even with modern equipment. Technology has since advanced, of course, and race times have sped up accordingly. For example, in the Iditarod races these days, volunteers on snowmobiles advance ahead of the drivers and break the trail for them. And sleds have come a long way since the 20s, using ever more durable and lightweight material, and so have the means by which drivers can keep warm and avoid frostbite and snow blindness. The dogs running the race today, which are often, though not exclusively, Siberian Huskies, can run astonishing 3.2-minute miles, that's about 19 miles an hour, for 25 miles straight. There's been a good deal of criticism of these kinds of races from organizations like PETA over the years, and the ASPCA has expressed concern as well. As punishing as the route is for humans, it can be, they argue, even more punishing for the dogs, who after all have no choice in the matter. In fact, from the first race in 1973 until 2012, 142 dogs died running the race, although they, they do um, receive veterinary attention as they go along. It seems to be a fine line ethically. The dogs do enjoy pulling sleds, but it's their commitment to their human handlers that makes them continue to pull under such extreme conditions. A testament, then, to the bond between human and dog. If we were made to trust each other, we humans also have the responsibility not to abuse that trust. Whatever side of the animal cruelty debate you come down on, mushing is a prime example of that special dog-human relationship, which allows us to achieve really amazing things working together. As I mentioned earlier, a lot was made of the fact that even in an age of rapidly advancing technology in the 1920s, the old standby of humans and dogs was what ultimately saved the day. An editorial from the Fairbanks Daily News Miner put it this way in 1925, during the run while the nation was still holding its breath to see whether the serum would arrive. We believe in the airship, and we believe in the dog. We know that an ordinary airship can make 60 miles an hour, and we know that a dog cannot. Where the dog has it over the airship is that the dog knows nothing about horizons, visibilities, temperatures, gasoline. All he knows is to obey his master's voice and march. The airship will go when it can, but the dog seems to go whether he can or not. We take our hat off to the dog. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes. See you next week.